Welcome to the Embedded Church Podcast, where we share stories about reweaving the connections between place, the built environment, and the mission of God. Season 5 of the Embedded Church Podcast is sponsored in partnership with the Ormond Center at Duke Divinity School. The mission of Ormond Center is to foster the imagination, will, and ability of congregations and communities to be agents of thriving. I'm Eric Jacobson. And I'm Sarah Joy Propay, and we'll be your hosts on today's episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. So one of the major themes that we've been exploring on this podcast is how to be a good neighbor or how to seek the shalom of the neighborhood. And this question always raises a lot of questions for me and I think for others about, you know, who is my neighbor? We see that even in the Bible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, and we normally address that question in terms of our residential neighbors or perhaps those who live in close proximity to the church. But really, there are a lot of people who spend a significant amount of their time in our neighborhoods who may not actually live in our neighborhoods. Right. And those are people like service industry workers, right? Like baristas or cashiers or others, particularly in the hospitality industry. And, you know, what's really interesting, too, is that not only do workers not live in those neighborhoods, but they tend to also be in different socioeconomic classes sometimes as well. And so they can't even afford to live or do life in the neighborhoods with people who maybe worship at the church, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's And that's really the case in our church, in our neighborhood. We definitely have a mixed income neighborhood. Um, we've got Section 8 housing and luxury housing all kind of scattered around, but more and more our neighborhood skewing towards um, middle, upper middle class uh, kind of situation. And so as we've thought about how to reach our neighbors, we're excited about the residential population, but we also recognize that we have a mandate to care for the least of these. And I think more and more we're finding that um, in the folks who work in the neighborhood. You know, that's a great discovery, but knowing how to really care for those people and what their needs are is um, a bit of a mystery. So I was really pleased that we have Kevin Finch uh, on our episode today because he has really thought about one particular sector of the workers in your neighborhood and uh, has come up with a ministry strategy that is really compelling. Yeah, so we're going to take a little bit of creative liberties on this episode and we're going to allow Kevin just to share his story with our listeners. So it's not an interview format, which is typical for us, but just a story time with Kevin to share about the formation of Big Table and the heart and vision behind that ministry, that organization that he's helped develop. And then after Kevin shares his story, we'll have a couple of field guides, as usual, to dig into some nuances of the story that Kevin shares and how we can apply that to the streets. Sounds great. My name is Kevin Finch, and I'm the executive director of Big Table. I was serving as a pastor in the Northwest. I was moonlighting as a restaurant critic, uh, which is not a normal kind of splitting of duties. But I may still have the distinction of being the only restaurant critic in the nation uh, whose day job was being a pastor. And that's part of the Big Table story. But uh, about five years into writing about restaurants, uh, my spidey sense went off that folks that work in restaurants and hotels in the hospitality industry, it seemed to me from spending time with chefs and general managers and 
being in and out of restaurants, that the folks that worked there seemed to be closer to the edge and in crisis more than any other kind of group of people that I was seeing in the community. I started poking around and investigating that. And it wasn't as bad as I thought. It was multiple times worse. The restaurant and hospitality industry has levels of poverty that are double the next closest industry. By one report, that would be 43% of the folks working in restaurants live at or just above the poverty line, below what economists would say is just a bare minimum to survive as a family. So incredibly high poverty rates, uh, highest rates of drug and alcohol addiction of any industry group, uh, divorce rates, broken relationships, stress levels, lack of insurance or safety net. Just on about any measure, the group that's going to land at the top would be restaurant and hospitality workers. So there's all of this need, but it's the hospitality industry. And with that job, they're required to put on a smile. It's the most important part of their uniform. So for anyone not in the industry, you walk into a restaurant, a hotel, you're greeted by someone who by definition has a job and has a smile on their face. So why would you think, oh, I'm now probably interacting with one of the folks most close to the edge in the whole community? You wouldn't. But for me, getting to write about the industry, I started to see that. Uh, Now I'm feeling guilty because I get to have these free meals and eat this wonderful food. And so I think, well, I'll just give a little bit of money that I make as a critic to support whatever organization is helping these folks. Looked around the Inland Northwest where I was living at the time. Nothing existed. Eventually, I'm looking at the entire country. This is 2006. And there were a million and a half nonprofits registered with the IRS. There wasn't a single one in the nation that was caring for what is the largest work group in the country with the highest concentration of need. It just doesn't make any sense unless you realize that they're good at their jobs. And because their job is hospitality, that need is hidden. But for me, here that this weird hybrid pastor restaurant critic, I see this and I can't unsee it. So I've seen all this, I've noticed it, but I don't know what to do, I'm a pastor. Middle of the night, uh, November of 2006, I wake up from a completely deep sleep instantly awake, like fully alert, like something woke me up. It was so abrupt, I get out of bed, walk to the foot of the bed, and I'm just listening. Uh, It's pitch black room, but I'm saying, did the window break? Did the doorbell ring? What woke me up? And I hear a voice. And the voice said, a direct quote, Kevin, my name, I need a pastor for the restaurant industry. Statement. Are you interested? Question. And uh, I have read the Old Testament. I'm familiar with the story of Samuel and uh, think that, okay, what you're supposed to do in a situation like this is respond. (laughs) So I say, and again, a direct quote, uh, yeah, 
But then I ask a question, what would that look like? And the reason I ask that question is because having written about food for five years at that point, I knew that no one in the industry wanted a pastor. Anytime they found out I was a restaurant critic, it was just an immediate conversation where everyone just kind of gathers around and we're talking about where's the best new breakfast place or tell me about that new pizza joint. If anyone happened to ask the question what my other job was, and I said I was a pastor, I could clear a room in about 30 seconds. No one wanted to talk to me. And the sad part about that is it's because Christians truly have the worst reputation of anyone in the service industry. Hospitality folks literally hate Christians uh, because their perception of those that they can identify as Christians are the folks that they're the most demanding customers, the stingiest tippers, take the tables for too long to study the Bible. I mean, people beg not to work on Sundays. It's the worst shift of the week. So that, I knew all of that. So now in the middle of the night, when this voice that I'm wondering if it might be God says, Kevin, I need a pastor for the restaurant industry. Are you interested? I'm thinking if that job existed, I'd totally be interested. But I think God might be out of touch because no one in this industry wants a pastor. So I genuinely asked the question, what would that look like? And in a pitch black bedroom, all of a sudden, I'm looking at a Bible fully lit in front of me that's open to Acts chapter two. And as I'm reading that end of Acts chapter two on a page that probably didn't physically exist in the room, two phrases just lit up on the page. The first one was they ate together. And the second one was if anyone had a need, they took care of each other. And then the voice said, well, that's how you pastor this group of people. And then the voice was gone. The Bible's gone. I'm just standing in a pitch black room. But I'm thinking, I don't know what just happened, but that seems really important. Went downstairs, turned on a light, wrote down everything I could remember, and then didn't tell a soul for three weeks because I was afraid everyone would think I was nuts. But the joy of what I do now is that's exactly what we're doing. We're creating community around shared meals over cups of coffee and caring for folks, serving those who serve others with tangible needs and then kind of ongoing mentoring and care. It's just remarkable. With the name Big Table, there literally is a big table that an architect designed for us. It's a wonderful big table. We designed it early on the very first year in 2009 and had no money at that point. So the request to the architect was, can you design us a really cool table that will cost next to nothing to build? <laughs> so his, the design he came up with was two by fours bolted together on edge in seven foot sections. So it's a 45 foot long table that can break down and be moved from location to location like an underground restaurant. We do dinners in each city. Now we end up doing probably about three dinners a year. But that dinner is kind of, again, on the faith side of it, I think it's the closest thing I've ever seen to a representation of what Revelation talks about as the kind of feast at the end of time. Everyone is welcome at this table, but the folks that get invited 
are folks that would never normally get to sit down. So it's servers and dishwashers and housekeepers sitting around this table, eating a meal that they didn't pay for, seven, eight courses by one of the best chefs in the community, and the rest of the community serves them for a night. And then at the end of the night, I'll say, who do you know that's certain that we could care for? The other thing that I love about Big Table is our model is a referral model rather than a hotline model. So almost every nonprofit out there is organized on a hotline model where the person in need is the one that reaches out for help. What we do is it's a referral from someone who knows them. So it's a manager, it's a coworker, could be a family member. That referral then takes the place of paperwork and everything else because we trust that relational connection. So when we reach out to a person that's been referred, it's not bring pay stubs or prove to us that you need help. It's your friend, usually they give us permission to use their name, mentioned that you're going through a tough time. Can we buy you a cup of coffee? So from the moment that we engage in a person's life, it feels like a relationship and more of a friendship than some transactional social service experience. So what they experience is not a program, but a relationship of someone who's interested in them, wants to know their name, wants to know their story, and then has the freedom and the ability to immediately respond with help. In the short term, the opportunity for a longer term relationship with that person where we get to help build capacity into their life and ask good, thoughtful questions, uh, that just goes up exponentially. Let me tell you Nicole's story. Uh, she was someone, single mom, three little kids, working as a bartender, trying to finish up her AA degree. This is 10 years ago where this story starts. It's an ongoing story that's still true today. I got to give her a hug about a week ago. But when we met her, the woman that interviewed her for a bartender job noticed after she gave Nicole the job that Nicole walked out to the parking lot and was pushing her car out of the parking spot and went out and said, is there something wrong? And Nicole said, oh no, my car doesn't have reverse. And I couldn't find a spot that I could just drive forward out of. Desiree, the manager, also noticed that this was a convertible and the top was stuck down. So this is a part of the country where you get a lot of rain and a fair amount of snow for part of the year. And this single mom with three little kids is driving around a car with no reverse that turns into a bathtub anytime it rains or snows. As Nicole drove away, Desiree picked up the phone and called me and said, Hey, Kevin, I just hired a bartender. She needs a car. Can Big Table help her with a car? We are on a shoestring budget. I have no idea how to do this. But rather than say no, I responded, and again, I don't think this was me. It was probably the Holy Spirit. I said, let me see what we can do. Hung up the phone and had no idea what to do. But literally the next day, I get a phone call from my sister in Seattle. We just said, hey, Kevin, we, we've got a car we want to donate. We we're going to give it to Cars for Charity. But for some reason, I thought I should just ask if Big Table would need it first. In 24 hours, now we've got a car. I just flew to Seattle, drove it back. We got to show up to Nicole and give her that car. And actually, when we called her to say, 
we hear you need a car. Her response, which is so typical of many of the folks we care for in the industry was, gosh, thanks for thinking of me, but wouldn't someone else need that car more than I would? And we got uh, Jill, who was having that conversation, said, no, I think, Nicole, this is the car for you. What happened as a result of that was the beginning of a relationship with Nicole, who over time wanted to talk about what faith looked like in her life after being an angry atheist for years. And we got to be part of her story, not just with that initial car. And the, the joy of that particular story, which I think is what has shaped all of Big Table, is three years later when she came and told me this, she said, Kevin, that car allowed me to get my kids to school. It allowed me to finish my AA degree and do all of these pieces. But I would trade that car in a second for the chance to have been in relationship with Jill for the last three years. That's what changed my life. For us, that's not rocket science, but that's exactly right. Uh, triage help has to be part of the equation when you're caring for folks in crisis or on the edge. But if you stop there, you're not doing what's going to have a long-term impact in their life, which is to have someone that cares about them, that can celebrate wins, that you can call when something's gone off the rails. Our tagline is we serve hope to those who serve us. And that's the piece that changes lives. One of the discoveries now that we're in, in multiple cities is that the needs are the same everywhere in the country. Wherever you're listening, and this is probably the most true in America, in the U.S., people think this is not a career. Uh, and so there's no one saying, how sustainable is this? But the needs are the same in every community. The culture is different in each community. So there's ways that you have to enter to be incarnate in that place in a way that makes sense for that space. But that's been stunning to me that right now in every city we're in, the number one need is folks that can't afford to pay for a place to live, about to get evicted. Rents for industry folks are just jumping. The referral that came in last week was a woman, single mom, who just said my rent just jumped $500 a month. I don't know what to do. And that's huge. I was talking today with some developers here at Colorado Springs. What we need is workforce housing. There is, we need to think outside the box around housing close to city centers for people who are never going to be able to afford market rate housing. Most of our folks are, are paying upwards of 50% of their income easily for where they're living. And that's unsustainable. Probably the most unreliable cars, if you have a car at all, are owned by restaurant workers. And who's driving the farthest? It's them. In every one of our cities, I have story after story about that. But that, it's not necessarily the mission of Big Table to build housing. Uh, today, actually, out of coming out of these conversations and a conversation yesterday, I'm thinking that I want to be a partner on a project to do that and design it specifically for, for hospitality workers. 
So if anybody wants to have that conversation, I want to, I want to be in that conversation. If you go to our website, we've got a whole section of things that we call how to care while eating and sleeping. Almost every one of them can be done anywhere in the country tomorrow. It's real simple stuff. We jokingly say it's a kind of a primer on how to be nice. But we also have one specific thing that if you're looking for a place to start, we call it an unexpected 20 envelope. And on our website, you can actually print out a little PDF. Essentially what it is, is it's a small tip envelope that you put a $20 bill in, carry it in your wallet or your purse. And when you're in a restaurant or a hotel, look for a person that's invisible. And it's probably someone that you would not notice if you weren't looking. And as you leave, just walk up to that person, hand them the envelope and say, make sure you look inside. There's 20 bucks in there for you. So it's not a transaction. It's not a tip. It's a gift. It blows a person away who's working for minimum wage. But the bigger impact is on the person who's carrying it because they start to see people that literally were invisible to them before. And the change that that makes for you as you you stop being necessarily a customer and you start to see those people that until then you would only notice if they screwed something up. If you've got young kids or grandkids, have them when you walk into a restaurant say, we're going to give this to somebody. You get to decide who we're going to give it to. It's just a joy. But there's all kinds of real simple little things, way simpler than that on the website to just say, hey, here's what you can do. And uh, there's a button on the website that says, bring Big Table to your community. If if someone's really excited about this, that is an email that comes directly to, that comes to me. And I say, let's, let's have a conversation. I just would encourage your listeners to see people that have been invisible to them before. Are you intrigued by what you're hearing on this episode? Then come talk with us more about it at our community forum on Tuesday, November 22nd. Registration links can be found in the show notes or on our website at embeddedchurch.com. Kevin's story is incredibly powerful. And after listening to that, my first thought was, how do I bring Big Table to St. Paul? Because that's amazing. And I want to do that. So (laughs) that's where I'm at with this. Yeah, absolutely. And I reached out to Kevin and asked him to give me uh, a couple of folks who've really bought into that model and have worked to bring Big Table into their communities, and especially maybe one that uh, is working in a walkable context. And he pointed me to Paul Cunningham, who is the pastor of La Jolla Presbyterian Church in La Jolla, California. And uh, Paul was really instrumental in bringing Big Table into the city of San Diego. We are excited today to have Paul Cunningham from La Jolla Presbyterian Church joining us to talk about his church and about Big Table and some other stuff about workers in the neighborhood. Welcome, Paul. We're glad to have you with us today. Thanks so much. It's great to great to be here. All right. So give us a little backstory on yourself and your church. How long have you been at La Jolla Press? So we moved here in uh, August of 2006. We are located, we're in, La Jolla is in San Diego County. Um, but if I walk five minutes west or five minutes north, I'm at the beach. 
it's not a resort town, but it's uh, a lot of people come here for vacation. And as you walk around, there is it's a fairly affluent community. So mm-hmm. a lot of uh, businesses, banks, financial institutions, retirement communities. So we have three actually fairly large retirement communities within uh, half a mile of the church. So all of them okay. within a 10-minute walk. It's, it's a little downtown feel, but not like a large mega city. So definitely a, a, a suburban sort of a setting and kind of a quiet town. and But lots of businesses and lots of restaurants and coffee shops. Okay. Great. Sounds fun. What about the residential presence? Do you have a lot of people who attend your church living nearby within a couple miles? Or what does that look like? Yeah, I would say probably... 50 or 60% of our people live within two or three miles of the church, and a lot of them live um, along the coast somewhere. Great. That's awesome. So what does the neighbor makeup look like for your church? When you think about who your church's neighbors are, how does that look? Um, I would say it's varied because you can, when I walk around, you know, I'll run into uh, 80-year-old members who go to our church, and they're just you know, cruising around and then run into middle school kids who are at the local middle school. I mean, I think La Jolla is about 35,000 mm-hmm. people, but uh, a lot of people, it, it, it's varied in age and in stage. In addition to people who live there, go to school there, and just attend your church, you've got people who work in the neighborhood. And a lot of people that commute in, so that's why our neighborhood's a little bit different. There is a lot of business that happens in La Jolla, and so a lot of people that commute in whether they're servers at restaurants or working in the hospitality industry or working in the banks or the financial institutions. I'm amazed at how far people commute to, to get to work in, well, in San Diego in particular, in particular to get to La Jolla. How far do you have to drive to get somewhat affordable housing in that neighborhood? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> or take yeah. the bus, I guess. Yeah, yeah San Diego is, uh, it's, it's famous for like a high yeah, cost of housing. It's right? very high. And, and I just read a statistic in La Jolla then the last year, La Jolla was the most popular place for um, real estate investors to come into and buy homes with cash and then uh, rent them out. And wow. so that's in, in all of San Diego County, La Jolla was the highest area. So it, wow. it, it really is. I think it's going to be interesting how that changes the neighborhood because, I mean, I was, right. I was shocked. I don't remember how many houses were sold, but it was a, a considerable amount of the housing market. Wow. I think as, you know, looking at our own neighborhood, I've been starting to think about you know, how do you do ministry where a, a decent size of homes uh, in your neighborhood are, are either second homes or they're Airbnb or VRA? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it definitely changes the dynamics of, of neighborhood for sure. So tell us about Big Table. How did you start getting involved with that? Sure. So Kevin Finch and I, I think we actually went to seminary together. We've tried to piece all of our, our story together. Kevin's the executive director of Big Table. When we moved to La Jolla, though, he and I were both serving in a house building ministry on the board. He had come down and we were driving into Tijuana and he was uh, talking about this new ministry that he was launching called Big Table. And I remember actually when we got back from that board meeting and we were sitting at uh, Wahoo's, which is a fish taco shop just down the street from our church. And he was describing it some more. And it, it really intrigued me when he was saying, what we want to do is build a, a ministry um, that cares for the people that care for us or the people that wait on us, our servers, the hospitality industry. And I just kind of filed it away because he was just in the early stages of forming what that was actually going to look like. And so that, you know, that conversation that was probably 10 years ago and probably about five years ago, I reached out to him and uh, 
Jill Lemon, who's the operations director, and said, you know, what would it look like for Big Table to come to San Diego? Because I love the image of what they were doing and how do we, you know, come alongside those who um, perhaps are struggling. I didn't know much about the restaurant industry. I had friends that had worked in it, but didn't know a lot about the industry. And the genesis of it for me was walking around our own neighborhood here in La Jolla, where our church is located, and realizing that we have outreach to the high school and the middle school and the grade school. We have outreach to the retirement communities. And then yet within, I would say, a five-minute walk of our church, I could probably get to 50 or 60 restaurants or coffee shops. Mm. And so God just kind of said, you know, you're caring for all these other people. You talk about doing mission. You've done a lot of mission outside of La Jolla, but what about inside La Jolla? And that was part of what began that. And then I remembered, oh, Kevin Finch does this thing called Big Table. And I know a lot of our church people eat out a lot and go to coffee shops a lot. So that was kind of the genesis of saying, Kevin, what would it look like for Big Table to come to San Diego? That's awesome. What does that look like then? If Big Table comes to San Diego, what does that mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a question my wife asked when we first started the whole process. It's a, lar- it's a large table that we put yeah. on the back of a truck and right. Uh, right. drop it there. That, that's what everybody... And I remember when they first came here, they, they showed a video of everyone sitting around a big table, which is a part of what they do, but it's really... That, that's kind of the launching of the giving them the vision and mission of Big Table. Uh, so, so their whole purpose is to, to catch the restaurant and hospitality workers kind of before they fall off um, the edge or you know, fall off the windowsill, so yeah. to speak, because a lot of them are making minimum wage. A lot of them are commuting. Like I think about the people who come into La Jolla and work here, even though they're living 40 or 45 minutes away and the amount of money they spend on gas and you know, utilities and, and everything else. And so the, the goal of Big Table is to really uh, minister to people in the hospitality industry uh, who find themselves uh, perhaps falling on part times. They work with uh, you know managers of restaurants, owners of restaurants, um, and saying, you know, are there people within your restaurant that really need some help? And that may be people who've lost you know lost their car. Like that's one of the things yeah. I realized. Like transportation is so important, and if your car breaks down and you can't get it fixed, and it takes you you know two hours to get to like La Jolla via you know, the bus or the trolley or whatever, um, you're, they're not going to keep your job for very long. So it, it's kind of this thing of saying when people do fall through the cracks, how do we, how do we come alongside them? And then identifying those people, which is a mm-hmm. part of what the um, big table is all about is trying to figure out how do we identify these people that are uh, perhaps struggling, whether it's with rent. I, I think a lot of it is with rent. I mean, that is a big one. And so there's financial assistance help offered. Uh, but also there's uh, medical care. There was a person in, in our community that was actually struggling with, with MS. And so they were able to get this person into the right doctors and because uh, the person didn't really know how to manage the, the healthcare system. And how does the church itself partner? What are some ways that you guys partner with them? I guess it's a benefit of partnering with them is we've really worked hard with our church to say, when you go out to eat or when you go and get a cup of coffee, do you actually acknowledge the person who's waiting on you? Our church's theme is around experiencing and expressing the transforming love of Jesus. So it's, okay, we've experienced God's hospitality toward us, but then how are we extending that hospitality to others? And so I think for our church members, it's been, I hope, kind of eye-opening of saying, hey, maybe I'm getting bad service today because my server's having a really hard day. And would you actually 
try and engage in a conversation around that rather than just being, you know, upset or like, I'm going to leave you a terrible tip because, you know, you lost my order or, or whatever else happened. So hopefully that helps in like with church members. And in, in terms of working with Big Table, money is obviously a huge thing for any nonprofit that's going to get started. Uh, so we did commit some serious money for the first couple of years to help them get launched in San Diego. But I think just as importantly, was connecting them in with uh, people in the food and restaurant hospitality industry, because as with most nonprofits, networking is a huge piece of the puzzle. It's been unique to me to see, because we're, we're kind of in suburbia, San Diego, and San Diego, I mean, it's a million people. So it's, there, we can go in all sorts of different directions in terms of what restaurants do we want to work with, or is there an area where most of the employees are coming from? I, for me, that's the piece we're still trying to sort out in San Diego, because the geography is just um, expansive. Um, well, can we go back just a second to, to the, the financial piece? You had mentioned some financial contributions. Just help me break that down to what kinds of things that might include. What kinds of things are you contributing to? Initially, it's uh, Big Table had some money that they came in with. And we basically said, we want to make sure that you get someone hired as a city director, especially when it's one person running the organization in a new community. That's a, a super important hire. Yeah. Uh, we actually had a church member who is... Uh, giving us just an incredible deal on office space. And it was, you know, it's just the way God works. It was kind of a word of mouth thing that he heard about Big Table from a friend who'd been helping me kind of launch Big Table. And he was like, well, I've got two empty office spaces uh, <laughs> that, you know, I'd be glad to, to let them. So for me, it was, can we help them find a space? Um, you know, Big Table is also unique in that they don't want to be really housed in a church because the restaurant industries oftentimes view the church kind of a sconce, if you will, of, um, you know, I'll never forget Kevin telling the story of, you know, talking to restaurant workers and they're like, you know, the church people roll in, they've got their Bibles and they lay out their Bibles and they have a two hour Bible study and they order a cup of coffee and don't leave a tip and walk out the door. Right. Um, yeah. You know, which is like, oh yeah, we do, we do that. So <laughs> I think that's just a really good reminder of, what the perception is out there. So, so for us, but in terms of like, what did we do? There was money involved. There was connections with uh, restaurant industry folks that we knew, kind of helping to set the table, if you will. Yeah, that's what I was curious about the restaurant connections. So it sounded like you all had that. How did you establish those connections? Were they people who were attending your church? Yeah, I think it was, um, it was a few people that attended our church, but just people that my wife and I knew or that other people knew kind of, by just living in La Jolla. The good thing is we'd lived here long enough so that we actually had some friends that owned a couple of restaurants and okay. I set up some meetings with Kevin to go and talk to them about, you know, hey, do you need help? Uh, I remember the, the initial meeting we had with this one set of restaurants was Kevin and I were sitting with him and he was saying, I wish you guys were here right now because I have a person on my staff who really could use the help of Big Table, who could use a connection to some counseling or some therapy and mm -hmm. which I thought was a great sign of someone who's, you know, just hearing about big table for the first time. And I'm saying, you know, the needs that you're meeting are, are real. Like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Do the people who receive assistance from big table know that a lot of that is funded through church funds or no, or how does that work? So, yeah, it, it kind of depends on the person. If if they're open to a conversation around faith, Big Table certainly wants to have that conversation. But there's no, um, you know, you don't have to be a believer or anything right. like that. And so I think that there's, you know, there's people who've been helped to have faith. There's people who've been helped who don't have a faith whatsoever. Um, and then they may hear that, you know, it's a Christian-based organization. For me, what I've loved is 
hearing some of the stories and saying, well, this is actually a Christian organization that cares about me. And I would have never expected that. Yeah. Right. Cool. Paul, have you been able to get personally involved in something um, with Big Table or like going regularly to a restaurant can be kind of considered a Big Table kind of thing right. to do, you know, right. to kind of adopt a, a local restaurant. But have you had some uh, rhythms and, and patterns developed through Big Table? Yeah. So they have these unexpected 20s, which are these little envelopes. The basic idea is you give it to the server and say, hey, whoever is in the back of the house or who's washing dishes, they may just need a, a general bit of encouragement. And you say, you know, I'm going to give you a tip as a restaurant server, but can you give this unexpected 20 to someone in the back of the house who's really struggling? And um, I, I've been amazed. We have people in our church who carry them all the time. But I think for me personally, I always had like a very, I mean, I like things to be at a high level of perfection. So whether that's my eating experience, or that's, you know, hopefully high pastor a church or I like excellence. And so I think I was kind of a snob when I would go into restaurants and just have these sort of unrealistic expectations. And so I think for me personally, what it's taught me is um, these are people just like you and me. And sometimes they have a bad day. I mean, being a preacher, I know that. Like there's some Sundays I wake up and I'm like, man, I'm just tired and I got to go and everyone's expecting 100% and to make it just right and preach just right and yeah. tell the funny stories. And you're just like, I'm not sure I'm feeling it today. And then realize, well, that's exactly how people who are serving the tables or taking care of us or cleaning our rooms may feel as well. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen your involvement with Big Table impact the neighborhood in particular ways? That's a good question. And this is anecdotal, but it's, it's true. I was out for a walk probably a year and a half ago and walked by a restaurant that I knew had, had supported Big Table and the owner of the restaurant was out there. And he literally stopped me and said, thank you so much for Big Table because we utilize them and we are big advocates for them. Cool. And so, I mean, that's anecdotal. That's one, you know, one person. But La Jolla is small enough that when the restaurant owners and managers start talking, there's probably more and more people that know about it yeah. that I'm actually aware of. Is yeah. my guess. No, I think that's that would make sense. And it's probably the kind of wins that are happening with Big Table are ones that for lots of good reasons, aren't like highly publicized. You mentioned a little bit about how you had changed your perception. Have you noticed other folks in your congregation that have have been shaped by their experience at Big Table? I was preaching yesterday. I ended by talking about um, the concept of kindness because yeah. I was listening to a podcast two or three months ago and the guy was talking about um, how he, he wants his church to be defined by kindness. Mm. And that really kind of resonated with me. And I think where Big Table has helped our church members, this is the sense I get, is that they're they're kinder now <laughs> when they yeah. when they go out to eat, when they realize this person may be making minimum wage, am I treating them as a human or is it just a transaction and I'm moving on? And so I think one of the things we've really worked on and when Kevin's been here and either preached or taught or you know, even myself is, are we being generous and are we being kind? Um, yeah. Generous in our words, generous in our actions. We talk to people about, hey, maybe you should have three or four favorite restaurants that you go to and you get to know the servers and you get to know their story. Mm-hmm. And you realize that they're just humans just like you. I've got a few restaurant workers that have my cell phone and they text me and they're like, hey, I'm in trouble or hey, 
I, I know someone who needs prayer. And for me, that's the beauty of it. The fact that I wouldn't necessarily have known this server um, or this person in the industry had I not spent some time getting to know them and talking to them. And I was walking back from lunch the other day and one of them's driving down the street and she flags me down and I'm standing in the middle of the street and getting honked at because we're having this conversation yeah. in the middle of the street. Uh, but I'm like, that's that's the beauty of it because I know her name, I know her story. She can reach out to me whenever. And so I think that that's been a, a fun part for me. That's awesome. And I hope for our church. I, I think they're now starting to say, yeah, we can know people and we can know their story. Yeah. And I think that's such an opportunity to be a marked difference. Yeah. Being generous and kind people as Christians in the world. That's awesome. I, I think it's just paying attention. It's great that we're helping all these other people. That was obviously the goal in all this. But I think my hope in that was it was getting people like, oh, this person, they're as much human as I am. And I may live in a big, expensive house and have my luxury lifestyle. But the person who's checking me out at the grocery store or who's working at the drugstore, they're a person who has needs as well. And they need to be seen and interacted with. I would be curious if you have some ideas of helping a congregation see those who are working in the neighborhood. You've alluded to that throughout this interview, but is there some more specific ideas or steps that you would give? I've had a few people in the last couple of weeks uh, remind me of the importance of slowing down. When you actually just walk through your neighborhood, I mean, that, that's kind of why I all of a sudden thought a big table was I was like, we're reaching a lot of folks in and around our church, but we're not reaching perhaps the largest industry that's actually, you know, right down the street from us in, in every direction, basically. And so I think it's getting people to pay attention to what's happening around them. I think, you know, particularly for me, having been here 16 years now, I don't notice stuff like I used to. Yeah. Uh, and I really have to kind of step back and say, how has our neighborhood changed? What are the dynamics of the businesses um, that are coming in or leaving? As churches think about assessing their neighborhoods and maybe even bringing in an outside person. Just from your perspective, if someone listening to this got kind of intrigued with Big Table, what would be a, a step they could take to maybe partner with them? Big Table has done an incredible job of creating a, a plan that works. The website, bigtable.com, is obviously the, the first place to go. But there's also on that website, if cities are interested in having Big Table come. Well, Paul, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking time today. This, this, is, this has been super interesting. And Yeah, thank you. It was really great hearing from Paul Cunningham and understanding how Big Table has taken shape in his San Diego context and bringing that under the umbrella somewhat of his church, La Jolla Presbyterian in Southern California there. One of the things, too, that really stuck with me that I think Paul alludes to maybe a little bit, but was very clear in Kevin's story is that transportation costs are really important piece of the puzzle for the livelihoods of these industry workers. And Kevin shared specific stories around people who needed cars because those cars were really were providing their livelihood to get to work and to bring their kids to school, those types of things. And so I reached out to Eliza Harris Giuliano as our field guide for this episode as well, to share with us from her perspective as an urban planner, how those transportation costs 
are often overlooked, but yet so intertwined with the livelihoods of these people. My name is Eliza Harris Giuliano, and I'm an urban planner with Canaan Associates in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Housing and transportation costs for most households are the two biggest expenses. And I think we talk a lot about housing because it's a big, obvious check that you have to write every month. It's easy to add up. Whereas transportation costs can be um, a little more illusory. It, it comes in dribs and drabs of a maintenance cost here and filling up your gas tank there. And of course, um, periodic purchases of vehicles. So it's harder to put a, a number on what that cost actually is for most households. It's not something they're as aware of. Um, but it can add up to be as much as as housing costs. So um, it's important for us as planners and as people who are thinking systemically to, to put those costs together and understand how they relate. And very often, the choices people make or the, the choices they have available to them for housing um, influence their cost of transportation. So if you live in a place where you can walk for everyday errands, where you can take transit to work, that can significantly lower your transportation costs. And it, it may mean a little bit higher housing costs, but that's offset by your savings in transportation, or it may be the same housing costs. But it's it's important to think about the interplay between those. So we're not assuming that just because somebody is saving money on housing, that they're saving money overall. We're actually in the middle of a transportation uh, referendum right now in my region. And the Orlando Economic Partnership has been talking a lot about the number of jobs that are available to people if they own a car versus if they're relying on public transportation. And because our public transportation system is frankly fairly deficient, it's just a fraction of the number of jobs are available with access of uh, bus or rail transit versus those you can access if you have a car. As we've been working on the transportation referendum, I think it's really important too to think about the cost of transportation that aren't aren't quite as easy to quantify. You'll hear transportation uh, experts or, or engineering lobbies talking about how much it costs people that they're stuck in traffic. And I think everybody'd like to be stuck in traffic less. But when we're talking about something like uh, a dysfunctional transit system, it may not be five extra minutes in traffic a day. It may be missing a bus connection that leaves you stranded for an hour or two hours. That kind of cost, particularly to somebody who works for hourly wages, is huge. And that kind of cost is something we really need to think seriously about. It's not about the averages. It's about providing a connective functional system. The thing that the transportation system needs to focus primarily on isn't necessarily getting everyone everywhere fast, but it's about reliability. If I'm taking this route to work every day, will I get to work on time every day? And the cost of being late to work can be significantly more for people who are in the service industry or people who are in those lower income jobs. Yeah, I think that, you know, anywhere you look, transportation is going to be a major issue with uh, workers in most neighborhoods, but that's connected, of course, to housing. And again, both of our previous guests alluded to that. Paul had talked about how far away people have to live who work in his neighborhood. And I think when Kevin was thinking about something that's sort of outside of their scope of Big Table that would really bless the workers in in most neighborhoods, he immediately thought of worker housing. And so I think housing is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle when we're trying to bless 
folks who work in our neighborhood. So I'm glad that uh, Eliza alluded to that as well. I know we've had a whole episode on housing, but but Eliza coming from a planning perspective, I think really sheds a lot of light on this important issue. Of course, service industries, jobs are located in neighborhoods of all different flavors, but especially when those jobs are located in, say, upper income neighborhoods, service industry workers typically can't afford to live in those neighborhoods. There's a lot of different approaches to trying to both provide affordable housing or attainable housing generally, as well as trying to provide it in certain neighborhoods. Uh, I think the basic first right step is to allow it in every neighborhood, to allow different types of housing, like apartments, like what we call missing middle, duplexes, quadplexes, types of housing that were very common in historic neighborhoods, but have been essentially zoned out of the conversation in contemporary planning. So if those things aren't allowed, then they can't start to provide a diversity of housing options. On top of that, particularly in areas where, say, the government's creating a lot of value, like a transit station, that's when it might make more sense to add on to that something like government-subsidized housing or inclusionary zoning to ensure not just that there's attainable housing within the region, but that there's attainable housing within each neighborhood. You know, one thing that's been a phenomenon over the last few years has been really the rise of the YIMBY movement, the Yes in My Backyard movement, pushing for housing abundance. And that's across incomes, across neighborhoods. And that's something that's happening nationwide, just legalizing housing across the board, because there's so many types of housing that zoning just doesn't allow, or places where the densities are suppressed far below what the market would suggest, which just means fewer people can live there. And if you can't even supply enough housing for the number of people that live in your community, you certainly can't supply housing for the least of these income-wise that live in your community. Hearing Eliza talk about transportation and housing, these realities of the way our cities are designed really all hinges on zoning. Shocker. Didn't see that coming. (laughs) Spoiler (laughs) alert for our listeners, right? So (laughs) Zoning ruins everything. It does, man. If we can't reiterate it enough, we're going to reiterate it again, that zoning plays an important role and being aware of how zoning has affected your community in the past and how you can affect it into the future, I think is just a really important thing for folks to be aware of and be paying attention to. So I'm going to let Eliza speak to this wonderful topic as a planner because she's very well versed in it. Prior to the 20th century, all neighborhoods were walkable uh, because that was the mode of transportation that was available. And then as you get into the um, the early 1900s, you start to see more streetcars. So you do see people traveling between neighborhoods for jobs, but they're generally traveling between walkable neighborhoods um, via some sort of transit. So that meant that people of different income levels essentially had to live closer to each other because they had to live within walking distance. One thing that's a big topic of conversation right now in the planning community um, and a little bit beyond the planning community is the idea of zoning. And zoning from when it was introduced in the mid-20th century until now has become increasingly refined and restrictive to where initially it was about keeping heavy industrial away from where people lived. And now it's gotten to where we're saying well, those people who live on 55-foot lots can't live near the people who live on 85-foot lots. So just the the level of segregation has gotten more and more intense as that zoning system has penetrated throughout communities across America. 
So of course, zoning is technically into the realm of politics, which makes a lot of pastors nervous. You know, we don't like to talk about politics. It can be pretty um, controversial. But one of the things that I've noticed is that zoning is the kind of politics that we don't often think about. It's not really easily uh, divvied up between right and left. I believe it is an area where for sure Christians can get involved in politics and maybe to some extent pastors and faith communities can weigh in as well because it really can have a huge impact on the well-being of the folks that we care deeply about and um, sometimes worth wading into that murky territory. And I'm glad that uh, Eliza mentions that as one of the ways faith leaders can be involved. I think that the people in the transportation industry aren't used to reaching out to faith leaders about issues like this. And the faith leaders aren't used to engaging in issues like this. And there's some sensitivity around it too, because there's a reluctance in the faith community to engage in say political issues. So I think there's huge room there for more connection and more advocacy on behalf of people that churches are, are providing services to, or that are just members of their congregations to make communities more accessible. And so I would encourage faith leaders to think of that as consistent with their mission rather than as that dirty word we call politics. And especially at the local level, you know, there's less partisanship and it really is about solving problems. And so everybody in the community needs to participate in that conversation, not just a few politically engaged people. Are you intrigued by what you're hearing on this episode? Then come talk with us more about it at our community forum on Tuesday, November 22nd. Registration links can be found in the show notes or on our website at embeddedchurch.com. Note to self. If I hear God audibly speak to me, take notes. Sit on it for a short time, then do it. Seriously, what a powerful story Kevin Finch has about how God called him to start Big Table. Like you, I am in awe of God, Kevin Finch, and Big Table's ministry. That has to be the biggest lesson from this episode. But the second is the crystal clear message that a thriving and just community, best pictured by the image of everyone in a restaurant, the customers, the owner, the managers, the waitstaff, the back of room staff, regardless of their social status or income, should be able to live in the same community or within a reasonable, reliable public transportation trip away. In order to achieve this community, it requires building a lot more housing. However, not just any type of housing, but infill, upzoned, missing middle housing, which is a mix of housing types for all budgets, ranging from single-family homes to granny flats to multifamily housing ranging from duplexes to fourplexes to apartments. In this episode, Kevin does an elegant and persuasive job connecting the dots for us, and so did Eliza Harris Giuliano, the rooming expert who added the transportation component too. So we know that building missing middle housing is an important solution to achieving inclusive and just communities so that teachers, firefighters, police officers, restaurant workers, retail workers, etc., can afford to live in the communities where they work. Unfortunately, we have regulatory financial, and other pernicious forces that stop us from building these housing types, which we so badly need. The recent book that sparked this national discussion is entitled Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It by M. Nolan Gray. I recommend reading Nolan's book to understand the problems 
and solutions to fix our broken zoning system. Another resource that will help you understand the nexus of affordability, housing, and transportation is the Center for Neighborhood Technology. Go to the website, which will be in the show notes, and dig around the resources and tools there. Which finally brings me to advocacy. We don't have to sit around on our hands. As Christians, we can advocate for change in our built environments. This is precisely the role of the church scattered, which the Almond Center promotes, namely, actively contributing to the common good as informed Christian citizens by advocating for good local placemaking initiatives, such as supporting sensible transportation and housing policies. These policies, like the transportation reform that Eliza is working on in Florida, or the infill housing reforms promoted by organizations like Yes in My Backyard, or San Diego's Yes in God's Backyard, can help solve chronic housing and transportation crises facing millions of everyday Americans that Big Table has shone a light on and is working to redress. So let's put our faith in action and our shoulders to the wheel to support and, when necessary, advocate for good public placemaking policies and programs. Well, that wraps up season five, which is crazy. And I think I love that we wrapped up season five with a woman urban planner giving love her it. perspective. <laughs> that feels so appropriate, being the fact that we are lovers of Jane Jacobs. And, yeah, yeah, you know, that's true. don't you There's think? something very symbolic there. I mean, yeah. it, it was also a fantastic episode overall, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it was very good. But I do like the symbolism. I think this whole season's been pretty fun, actually. I mean, they've all, I they've all been neat in their own way, but I love the diversity of voices and just a little more, bit more um, conversational. And, yeah. Uh, um, well, I think that having the field guides as part of this really helped round out the conversation and give some great perspectives in terms of people that are in the field practicing or researching some of these things. So hopefully our listeners found those additional voices and added value to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, the community forums uh, oh, yeah. have been really wonderful. interesting. Yeah, getting folks to to join us and ask questions and give feedback. And those have, have added a ton of dimension to the primary episodes that we've done. So I've really enjoyed that. Definitely putting faces with names has also been kind of fun. Yeah. So, well, I'm already getting excited for season six. I know. But you know what? Listeners, we don't have it all mapped out yet. It's a work in progress, but you can stay tuned because we're not leaving the airwaves. I can promise you that. Absolutely. We're so glad you tuned in for another episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Check out the show notes for links to resources and other information related to this episode. If you'd like to connect with us about the work we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at embeddedchurch.com or leave a voice message on our feedback line by calling 760-527-3260. Follow us on Instagram at Embedded Church Podcast and visit our website, www.embeddedchurch.com. Finally, thank you to our Season 5 sponsors at Orman Center. And to all our faithful listeners and supporters who have joined with us on this journey, we are honored and encouraged. Until next time, be well.